кадре, который мы получили только что, Владимир Путин Нас по видеосвязи. не слушал. Послушайте сейчас. Привет, это Навальный. Я уже свою работу, а сотрудники безопасности... гоном вас. С новым веком. The HIMARS are changing the game on the battlefield. The high-mobility artillery rocket systems and other long-range weapons supplied by the West are enabling the Ukrainians to hit high-value Russian targets, reduce their own casualties, and mount a counteroffensive in the East and South. Russia, meanwhile, is playing a long game, hoping to wear Ukraine down with indiscriminate shelling of civilian centers to enable a slow, grinding advance in territorial gains and is hoping to wear the West down by provoking an energy and food crisis. In this sense, the war in Ukraine is becoming a battle of sustainability. How long can Russia maintain its assault before running into manpower shortages and domestic opposition? And amid high inflation, high energy prices, and fears of war escalating and metastasizing, how long can the West sustain its willingness to keep giving Ukraine the support it needs to resist and reverse the Russian offensive? The stakes could hardly be higher. And today we'll discuss the all-important battle of sustainability. So stick around. Hello from my makeshift home studio in Washington, D.C.'s Funky Adams Morgan neighborhood, and welcome to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UTA McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from Washington, D.C.'s hip DuPont Circle neighborhood is my old friend and colleague, Maria Snegovaya, a postdoctoral fellow at the Kellogg Center for Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at Virginia Tech, a visiting scholar at the Institute for European, Russian, and Eurasian Studies at the George Washington University, and a non-resident fellow at the Center for a New American Security. Welcome back to the podcast, Maria. Thanks for having me, Brian. Thanks for coming on, and I understand you'll be starting a new job at Georgetown on Monday, so congratulations on that. Thank you. Thank you. And also joining us from historic downtown Washington is former U.S. State Department official Max Bergman, who served, among other posts, as a member of the Secretary of State's policy planning staff and as a speechwriter for former Secretary of State John Kerry. These days, Max is director of the Europe and Russia program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington. Welcome back to The Vertical, Max. Thanks for having me, Brian. Thanks for coming on. Maria, our mutual friend, Tatiana Stanovaya, the prominent Paris-based Russian political analyst, had an insightful piece in the New York Times this week titled, Putin Thinks He Is Winning. In it, she argued that Putin has a three-part strategy. First, capture all of the Donbass with scorched earth tactics and indiscriminate bombing of civilian targets. Second, continue to terrorize Ukrainian cities across the country with missile artillery and airstrikes to force Kyiv to sue for peace. And finally, wear the West down by provoking energy and food crises. Maria, how do you see the Russian strategy unfolding and how sustainable is it? What, if any, are the domestic constraints on Putin at this point and moving forward? What constraints may appear in the future? Great question, uh, Brian, and I think the one that on everybody's mind uh, these days, uh, right? Uh, to a large extent, uh, what Tatiana is uh, writing, to a large extent, has been voiced by the Kremlin officials themselves, right? The goal uh, to uh, essentially take over all of the Donetsk, Luhansk regions were actually voiced uh, by the Russian top generals uh, back in May. Uh, and actually, it uh, represents a revision from the original ambitious goals, which, as Tatiana points out, and we also notice from the official statements, uh, are still there on the background, right? Ultimately, the goal is to control Ukraine. The question as to whether this is likely to happen is 
um, the answer to this question, uh, whether that's likely to happen, really uh, depends on the West's actions, right? And uh, unlike uh, Tatiana's take uh, on the whole situation, like Tatiana read, uh, essentially views what Putin thinks about it, uh, I'm actually quite much more optimistic now uh, than I used to be. Uh, based on the original, uh, the Western response, I'd have to say it was unprecedented in strength and resilience, uh, despite the costs uh, that the Western societies have to endure, undergo. Uh, right, the, the embargo, the oil embargo that's been negotiated and uh, has to be implemented by the end of this year is completely unprecedented given the uh, European dependence on Russia's uh, energy and the fact that the EU gave Ukraine uh, the candidate's status is extremely encouraging. I do not think the Western societies are likely to abandon uh, Ukraine. Everybody understands what's at stake. Uh, at the um, uh, Globsec conference uh, uh, earlier in June, uh, this was very visible, uh, that actually the European uh, countries and the politicians understand that's not about Ukraine anymore, right? It's about, at this point, the security of all of Europe. Having said that, uh, Russia, unfortunately, also is unlikely to give up anytime soon. And there I definitely concur with what Tatiana points out. However, uh, yeah, Putin as an autocrat, as a very uh, tough personalistic autocrat, uh, is not uh, very much uh, limited uh, by the existing uh, constraints uh, in the society. And I have to say, Again, unfortunately, the early impact of the sanctions was weaker uh, than expected. We'd all understand the sanctions are a long-term instrument tool. Mm -hmm. uh, having said that, it's also true that the Russian economy, partly thanks to response of Russia's very professional macroeconomic team, ended up being um, less hurt uh, by the sanctions, at least early on. However, there are some uh, signs uh, that keep multiplying domestically in terms of the economic effects, in terms of the societal responses that suggest that uh, essentially some impact of uh, this war starts to be felt uh, by the Russian society. So, so you so you are largely optimistic about the sustainability of, of this on the Western side. Um, in terms of Putin's domestic constraints, I mean, I've read reports that they to address the manpower shortage and to avoid a general mobilization, they are recruiting people from prisons, um, giving them amnesties mm -hmm. if they fight. They're 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 and of course we've long known that they're paying uh, uh, contract soldiers large large salaries in order. To go, do you do you think that is going to work to keep the troops uh, to, to to address the manpower issue? Is this is this a realistic strategy? We're basically putting untrained troops in in, in the field here. Um, so it's actually um, again uh, the situation that's very much in development. Uh, we definitely see uh, the the Kremlin struggling to um, uh, raise more uh, military power for uh, cannon fodder, so to speak, for this war. Uh, just today, there was some uh, report from close hearings uh, at the um, uh, Congress about Russia having lost uh, in overall in killed and uh, uh, injured uh, military about 75,000 mm -hmm. uh, people, which is comparable at this point, really uh, seriously comparable to the official estimates of uh, the Soviet Union losses in the Afghanistan war. The yeah. difference is that this war has lasted for uh, less than half a year. In Afghanistan, we're talking about about a 10-year period, ten -year of period, course. Yeah. But also keeping in mind that, of course, the USSR heavily underestimated the true uh, losses. Nonetheless, uh, this is extremely meaningful. At the same time, what we see is that the Kremlin is desperate not to 
try to avoid to announce uh, this uh, large scale mobilization. They also, as you said, like trying to look up for alternative for all sorts of ways to recruit more people, uh, try also to avoid to target ethnic Russians. Uh, so one particular yeah. thing that uh, among others, the Institute for the Studies of War points out in its analysis uh, that uh, this active effort to recruit from ethnic minority regions, Buryatia, Chechnya, Tuva, uh, to yeah. avoid engaging with uh, ethnic Russians. Why? Because that's highly unpopular. So you're absolutely right that that's the issue. However, that has not become uh, that problematic for the Kremlin just yet. It's true that the forces are becoming less professional. It's uh, they, are, they try to look up for alternative ways to recruit. In St. Petersburg, for example, there are reports that there are sorts of announcements trying to engage, like ads trying to engage people to join the army. However, that's not, uh, with all that, that being true, that's not yet that bad for the Kremlin, right? The Kremlin still manages without announcing a full-blown um, uh, mobilization across the Russian society. So yeah. that's a constraint that uh, that will probably be felt later on. And here, by the way, probably one of the reasons why uh, the Kremlin will be seeking uh, some pause in this war after some time, after they may have re reached some short-term uh, goals, such as taking over to Donetsk and Luhansk, at least. Okay, well, let's let's switch to the U.S. and to the West, effectively. And Max, uh, some comments from National Security Advisor, recent comments from National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan, um, caught my attention uh, last week when he said the administration is opposed to giving Ukraine army tactical missile systems, which are uh, which are similar to the HIMARS, um, except they have a much much longer range. I think it, uh, I think it's about three times the range. Uh, the administration is yeah. opposed to giving these to the Ukrainians. The Ukrainians want these because it does not want to head down quote the road to toward world war the third world war. At the same time, there are reports that the administration is actually considering providing Western fighter jets. Um, and I'm not sure how a army tactical missile system is provocative and is going to lead us to World War III, but a, 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 I don't know what kind of fighter jets, an F-16 or a Gripen or something, is, is, is not. I don't, I, I don't get that. Um, Congress, meanwhile, is about to consider the next tranche of aid to Ukraine. How do you see the sustainability here in Washington to continue supporting Ukraine? Do you see it wavering, or do you? Do you and how do you view the administration's caution on, on on some of these weapon systems? Yeah, I think it's a great question, Brian. And I think the way I sort of think about it is is a little bit how you know how how do the how do movies uh, how do movies get categorized, right? You know what is what's the difference between a rated G and a rated PG, and then PG thirteen, and then something that's rated R? I think for the administration that attackums that would have you know triple the range of HIMARS that would potentially give Ukraine the capability to strike uh, on the Korean Peninsula, but also uh, deep into Russia, is getting a little too rated R for them at this moment. <laughs> um, and and I think it's there's a sense of you know what's what's the actual difference? Well. You know, I, there probably is uh, some difference in military capabilities and how far, you know, a fighter jet could, could you know, you're not really going to send fighter jets probably into Russian territory. Uh, so, I, I, you know, I think this is a sense of, of feel of where they are right now in, the, in, uh, in relations with Russia. The administration is concerned about the potential for nuclear escalation. I think there is a, 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 a you know, that it, it has to be something that the White House is concerned about, especially if we're, we're seeing uh, the casualties uh, that Maria mentioned. 
and the potential for uh, Russia to feel potentially very insecure and the need to kind of demonstrate not just to Ukraine, but the West, that they are still a force we reckon with could, I don't think this is likely, but then decrease the potential threat threshold for a tactical use of nuclear weapons. So I think that's something the White House has to be concerned about. Now, that said, I think there is a tendency in the administration uh, and having sort of lived through this in 2014 and 15 and 16, when we were looking at assistance to Ukraine and, and the Javelin missile, to get wrapped around the axle a little bit about um, what the response would be. I also think there is a potential deterrent aspect to attackums uh, down the road, where I think Ukraine's ability to strike back at Russia uh, is something that's going to really concern the Russians in any sort of peace agreement, where the Russians wouldn't want Ukrainians to have certain missile capabilities that could strike deep into Russian territory uh, and would want to have that could be part of any sort of future negotiations. But that said, I think right now the focus is on the battlefield. And I've seen reports of A-10s. I think that could be one aircraft where basically the U.S. military is looking to retire those aircraft, have been trying to for decades. Uh, Congress wouldn't let them. And this could be uh, a way of getting rid of them, essentially give them to oh. Ukrainians. So uh, I, and I think where we are now is I think, look, U.S. support for Ukraine, I think, is going to be very solid. Uh, I think the amount of money that has been going to Ukraine is uh, extraordinary. I'm not sure the United States Congress is going to be able to maintain that level of assistance. However, I think where Ukraine is at, it's it's the new Israel in terms of uh, Israel was, has been the largest recipient of U.S. security assistance, roughly $3.5 billion a year. Uh, and Ukraine is now getting way more than that. If you told me back in, uh, you know, uh, January, that the amount of money going to Ukraine uh, uh, to support its military would surpass $20 billion, I would have been shocked. Uh, and doing that in one year uh, is just, uh, I think, utter, uh, really extraordinary. Um, and so I, I think that support is going to continue. I think that the challenge here for the Ukrainians is, look, they are, you know, as, as terrible as this operation has been uh, conducted by the Russians, Russia is still a world superpower when a, uh, militarily. And Ukraine on its own is facing a global military superpower uh, on its own. And their military has been uh, uh, just much of it has also been destroyed. So they are going to be desperate to rebuild its military to gain to get more uh, from the West. And so Ukraine's asks are extraordinary. They are enormous. Sometimes they are making asks that basically would wipe out our entire stockpiles of certain uh, equipment varieties. And that may seem ridiculous. And in some ways, sometimes the requests are, are, are a little over the top, but frankly, they are taking on the Russian military on their own. So uh, I think the West, my concern when we talk about political will of the West is not so much that the West is gonna go soft, is gonna be, start negotiating with, with Putin and really try to just get out of the crisis and enforce a ceasefire on Ukraine. It's that I don't know if we, especially on the European side, have financially prepared ourselves for how expensive it's going to be to support Ukraine over the long haul. And just one quick you know, analogy is that, look, in the Iraq war, we were spending, Iraq and Afghanistan, the United States was spending roughly $10 billion a month uh, at, I think, basically at the high point of those conflicts. Now, how are we paying for that? The $120 billion? That wasn't coming out of the Pentagon's budget. We created an overseas contingency account, mm -hmm. an off-budget vehicle, because if it came out of the Pentagon's budget, guess what? We That war would have ended very quickly. 
But what you have on the European side is you don't have a Ukraine Assistance Act like we have. And so all the money that is going to support Ukraine is coming out of Ministry of Defense budgets, which then is basically taking away money from procurements that they need, readiness, uh -huh. you know, replacing all the, the woeful state of European militaries. Uh, and the only off-budget vehicle, off-budget off in quotes, is essentially the EU with a European peace facility with roughly 2.5 billion euros. And I think it's, we should really be pushing uh -huh. the Europeans, you need to create a vehicle a financial vehicle that incentivizes countries to give away equipment, to know that they're going to be backfilled and be able to buy new equipment. That's what we've done with the Ukraine Assistance Act, and I think that's what we should be pushing the Europeans to do so as well. And it's what we've done also with Lend-Lease, if I'm not mistaken, which gives the president unilateral authority to just basically, quote unquote, lend military equipment yeah. to Ukraine. I, I mean, the, the Lend-Lease is sort of for show. In some ways, you know, we had uh, professionalized Lend-Lease through the Foreign Assistance Act of 1961 uh, and had sort of be, really set up a, a professional security assistance system. But I can tell you uh, that, you know, what we had is something called presidential drawdown. And the president was allowed every year to draw down $100 million worth of equipment from DOD stocks. And this was, you know, we're going to get body armor to the Lebanese armed forces. We're going to get, you know, various sets of equipment uh, uh, to countries in need. Uh, but it was always very difficult to get the Pentagon to want to go along with that because they're basically just getting stuff taken away from them. So to go from $100 million a year, that's what's capped, to basically like 20 plus billion or where the basically, you know, what's happening is we're just taking equipment from U.S. military forces and sending it over to Ukraine, uh, you know, it, it w was would never have happened without a war without the war right. being kicked off because any U.S. general in the army, in the service, in the services, whether Army, Marine Corps, and Navy, would object to saying, we're going to lose all this equipment that we need in a potential military contingency. So one of the things that we have to accept, our Western militaries are going to have decreased readiness as we're giving away a lot of equipment. And we need to get our defense industrial uh -huh. production going. And part of what the Ukraine Assistance Act does is basically give the Pentagon money to go put in orders now to make big requests uh -huh. for, for HIMARS artillery, for all these other things, javelins that we're giving away. That allows industry the confidence to uh, really invest in expanding production. They know they're going to have production for a number of years. And then we can replenish our stocks and also incentivizes, you know, the one-star generals and others that are you know, to to not object to giving away equipment because they know they're going to be backfilled down the road. Right. I want to turn to Maria in a moment, but I want to stick with you for a minute, Max. There's a couple other points I wanted to hit on here in the United States. Um, there's been this longstanding kind of debate in the administration between, largely it was between the NSC and state, uh, if you can institutionalize it, over, you know, China, uh, prioritizing China and parking Russia. That debate seems to have been solved. But I'm wondering if that debate is manifesting itself now in terms of uh, in terms of this these fears of escalation, I mean, do we see a a hawkish and a more dovish uh, wing in 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 the administration? And as far as Congress goes, because co Congress is considering the next tranche, um, Victoria uh, Sparts, the uh, the the Indiana Republican Congresswoman, who is the um, the only Ukrainian American in Congress, has been very outspoken against aid to Ukraine, and I'm wondering if that can kind of catch on. Um, in certain parts of the Republican caucus. Uh, so maybe maybe let me take the first part on on the the China the sort of the 
Asia hands versus Europe hands within uh, within the administration. I think, I, you know, in, in the, the whole effort by the administration to park Russia and focus on China. Look, I think that's sort of been solved. I think right now everyone is focused on Europe. Everyone is focused on Russia. Transatlantic relations are great. Like, you know, we have uh, administration officials are going to Europe constantly. The where NATO is has been reinforced with with more U.S. forces. The amount of resourcing going to Europe has really increased. But the pivot ain't over, right? The, right. China is sort of going to suck attention back. And what concerns me somewhat about the administration's approach is, in some ways, it is the the best version of ourselves where we're super focused on NATO, we're super focused on Europe. But what we're not doing is really pushing Europe in a new direction when it comes to European defense and European security. It's built right now, it's the Europeans are getting all the attention, but they're pushing in the same direction they've been pushing. And my concern has always been that this is sort of not sustainable, that I think the focus is going to be on Ukraine, I think over the next year, it's going to ship back to China. And what we should be doing is really pushing the Europeans to create a European pillar within NATO where they can start taking on more of the security and defense responsibilities themselves. And Europe's about to spend a lot more money, but what they're not doing is spending it on things that we provide. So we pay for European security, the Europeans pay for their own national security. They're not paying for the critical enabling capabilities that, that may allow Europeans to all work together. We do that. And that's the sort of thing we should be encouraging Europeans to do, and we're not really doing that. Um, so that's one broader concern. But when it comes to the kind of debate within the administration between doves and hawks, look, look, I actually think it's useful to have some tension here, because sometimes hawks can go running in a direction, and oftentimes I'm like inclined to agree with them. But then a dove raises a point about like nuclear escalation, and it forces you to really think about that argument. I think it's healthy to have that debate, and I think that debate is happening. I think one of the things we're seeing is there aren't a lot of leaks coming out right now of, of White House mm -hmm. deliberations and thinking. And it shows you that that's, there's a pretty solid process. So I don't think you want everyone on the same page. I think in the Obama administration, sometimes it became too much of a legalistic kind of process where there's just meetings to death. And I don't think we're really there yet. I think the administration has done a really good job. I think there are some debates on the outer bounds of weapon systems, the HACMs. You're always probably going to have a healthy critique of the administration that it's being too slow on some of these more advanced systems. The last point, just on broader support for, for Ukraine. Look, I think we're pretty locked in over the next few years with the Biden administration in place. And I don't think that any members of Congress um, are really going to want to push against it's not in their interest to push against Ukraine security assistance funding. I do think that when you get into a Republican nomina nomination process, um, that that's where you could start to see a shift in in potential support, depending on where you know Donald Trump and others come down uh, in terms of backing Ukraine. Do they do they mention this at all? I think that's probably the best case scenario. It's just not really mentioned, and that support for Ukraine is one of those things that happens in sort of secret Congress where no one really pays attention and like, you know, billions of dollars right. go out the door. So, and no one decides to make it a political issue. And so I think we'll see, I'm pretty confident over the next few years, we're gonna have robust military support for Ukraine. I think that will continue even, you know, if the administration should change over, but there is, there is some reason to, to be a little worry, to worry and to 
keep an eye out. Yeah, yeah, and Congresswoman Sparks' comments did kind of they, – they, they raised a little bit of alarm for me, but they don't seem to be getting any traction. I want to come back to you a little bit in a bit on Europe, Max, because you did raise Europe, and that's something I wanted to talk about. But first of all, I want to go back to Maria. And, um, there, we, we, are, we were talking off mic uh, a few weeks back with our mutual friend Michael Kaufman, the military analyst, and he seems to see this potential looming problem for Putin – domestically as a result of this. It's effectively that Putin has a dilemma. Um, just capturing the Donbass isn't enough for the, the hardline imperialists in the Kremlin elite. They want a military parade on the Khrushchev. The Donbass isn't going to cut it. But for the other side of the elite, the kleptocrats that just want to go back to the way things were, that really don't want this war, it's disrupting their ability to steal and spend their money in the West. The war is too much, as it is, it's too much for them already. So this kind of puts Putin in the middle. He's in a position where he is pleasing exactly nobody. Do you do you do you concur with that? I'm, it's a, it's a, it's an intriguing thought, actually. Uh, that's a very interesting uh, thought, and everything Michael uh, Kochman says, I think, deserves uh, some consideration. However, I think uh, uh, Western observers tend to overemphasize the role of. Um, um, alternative power centers, so to speak, in uh, within the Kremlin. Uh, just a reminder uh, that this decision to invade Ukraine, right, as we know now, has been made essentially by a very tiny circle of people, Putin, Patrushev, Shoigu, and Gerasimov, uh, probably. Uh, if spoke, too. Uh, that would add um, If you were in Moscow in early February uh, 2022 and spoke to some of the broader elite circles, they would assure you that (laughs) no war was on the horizon uh, at all. And uh, that actually was some... So the fact that the war essentially was imposed by a few uh, people from the Kremlin on the Russian elites, uh, which had very different preferences, right? They just want to, most of them just want to have a nice life, travel to the West, have their children, have some uh, Oxford education, and essentially uh, not worry about all these geopolitical concerns, right? Uh, and the society as well, the fact that very few people essentially impose this reality on uh, broader groups within the uh, within the Russia uh, made some observers expect some rebellion, domestic resistance, right, from the society or the elites. Uh, so several months later, uh, we have next to none, uh, right, when it comes to the society and when it comes to the elites. Unfortunately for us, long-term watchers of Russia, that's not uh, exactly surprising, right? The cooptation of the elites and the society, um, and that's a long, long, long uh essentially a discussion how it all unraveled, and of course there's a lot of communist legacy here. Uh, The cooptation has been taking place for a while, and uh, specifically when it comes to the elites, they are uh, completely, to a large extent, controlled uh, by the Kremlin. We had seen next to none uh, defection uh, from the elite circles. Most of those who defect either have Ukrainian backgrounds, I think it's important to highlight, or their the remnants of the so-called system liberals dating back from the 1990s, like Anatoly Chubais, who, by the way, despite being being one of the very few people who defected, even uh, having left uh, Russia, still remains silent. And I think that tells you something about the control that the Kremlin continuously holds over even those people who decide to leave the system. Now, uh, yes, it's true that within uh, these elite groups, there are people with different preferences, most of them, I would argue, would much rather go back. 
uh, to the way things were uh, before, however, the mechanisms of uh, ensuring compliance, uh, right, and those are uh, multiple, including uh, very harsh elite repressions uh, that have been on the rise since 2012. And for example, uh, some Russian uh, political scientists like Nikolai Petrov actually classify those as mass scale repressions. You cannot really talk of mass scale repression, not yet, maybe they may be getting there. Uh, you cannot really talk of mass scale repressions on the societal level. Uh, they're still quite isolated. Um, um, however, um, when it comes to the elites, you definitely can talk of mass scale repressions unraveling since 2012. And uh, all dissenting voices were essentially purged uh, from the systems for quite a while. The oligarchs are highly dependent on uh, Putin. They're not really oligarchs, they're, they're Putin's wallets, uh, right? right? They're yeah. also not, uh, they don't really have uh, much agency. The Silovikis are atomized. Um, uh, all of them lack any uh, possibility for collective action. And that was uh, intentionally, again, constructed by Putin over the last uh, 20 years. So, uh, for example, there are studies that show that even Siloviki, uh, the faction within the Kremlin that's arguably uh, is powerful, more powerful uh, right now than, say, the oligarchs. Uh, they are still uh, quite horrified. Uh, they're under constant threat of repressions. And most importantly, they have very few links between each other. Uh, so they're much, each of them has some connection to Putin uh, when we talk of top level uh, Siloviki right. positions, but not to each other, which prevents collective action. So from that perspective, regardless, essentially to make the long story short, regardless of what they actually may be thinking uh, for themselves, what they might be discussing with their families and their kitchens. Nice. Um, the reality is such that the alleged they're not very important for ultimately for Putin's decision making. And the same logic can be brought in uh, for the larger uh, groups Sorry. within the Russian society. Yes, of course, there are people who disagree. There are extremely courageous people who continue to speak up, perhaps in instrument some acts of uh, diversion. You know, there was uh, there were a number of uh, attacks against military precincts. And actually, in recent polls, some quite promising signs of shifting uh, societal moods uh, towards this war. Uh, we have some at least uh, three to four polls. Some of them are run specifically for the presidential administration. Uh, they've been leaked uh, to the public, showing that the Russian, uh, the number of people who support stopping this war is growing. Um, uh, specifically, there was one uh, poll by film that actually has shown that at this point uh, the society is divided pretty much uh, in equally across uh -huh. those who want to support, uh, continue supporting uh, the war in Ukraine and those who want actually the war to stop. 44% for each option. Uh, that, however, is unlikely to constrain Putin seriously. Uh, as a matter of fact, we've seen that prior to the war, the, Prior to the beginning of the war, uh, the majority of the Russian state actually wanted the state to spend on uh, social expenses, uh, not on the military. Uh, this uh, this poll has been run uh, annually uh, by the Levada Center, and in 2021, December 2021, it peaked over 20 years of reputation. So the largest number of Russians wanted the state to invest uh, in social uh, spending more. Uh, that did not constrain Putin, as we've seen, and that's unlikely to be a very serious constraint on his actions going forward. That will be one of the considerations, right? But by far not enough to make him stop the war.
right? So this, so basically, the 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 risk of a mutiny in the short term is is very very low. Although there maybe are some storm clouds on the horizon, I guess. Before we move into the second part, I wanted to get Max. You 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 basically do Europe, and I wanted to throw this question to you about how steady will Europe be? Um, we just saw the Italian government fall. I'm a little nervous about what's going to follow it. Um, we have Emmanuel Macron, the French president's dreams of being a peacemaker. Um, every time every time he 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 opens his mouth I, I, on this subject, I get a little bit nervous. We have Germany's you know traditional energy dependence upon Russia. Do you see Europe remaining steady? You seem to be pretty bullish on the American sustainability. What about the Europeans? Yeah, I'm uh, incredibly bullish. I had a, a recent piece in the Washington Post where I'm like, we need to stop assuming that Europe is just going to like collapse at every, yep. because Europe is strong when there's a crisis, that Europe, when there's a crisis, Europe rallies. And yes, Macron, you know, has visions of grandeur and has maintained a line uh, uh, open to, to Putin. But I think he's also done that in coordination with with the White House and with others. Uh, and I think there's some value in having someone that has that does have uh, an open line to to, to Putin. Um, but I think you know everyone's looking forward to the to looking forward in quotes, but uh, to the energy crisis that is that is hitting Europe and that is going to really come this winter. When you know I think the expectation is that gas will be almost completely cut off. We've seen uh, gas reductions in the flow uh, to to Europe, and there's just a basic problem. That Germany and, and it has in particular is that when you remove gas, Russian gas from that equation, it doesn't have enough energy to meet its energy demands. Uh, and so there's going to be most likely rationing in Europe. There's going to be real problems. But one of the things that we're, I think we're seeing is that European leaders are recognize, recognizing this and rallying, uh, taking real steps, preparing their publics, and also doing where you know the europeans and the russians are engaged in this political dance of of this blame game over who's to fault uh, who's at fault over cutting off the gas and i think the germans have done a very good job uh, Zelensky was very opposed to you know bringing the the, the tr gas turbine that was in canada giving it back to gazprom but that's i think a critical signal to the german population that no the german lead political leaders aren't cutting off the gas it's it's going to be vladimir mm. putin and if anything, I think this is going to backfire on Putin, because I think what will happen is that it's going to rally European public opinion uh, against Russia even further, uh, especially if they're cold. And it's a very easy to blame Putin because European leaders will say, turn on the gas. And I think the next thing uh, uh, after that is that Europeans are going to just move forward with the energy transition. They are decoupling from Russia at a very rapid clip. And yeah, it's going to be economically disruptive. But guess what? We just survived COVID. We just survived a moment where we literally stopped our economies. And what we've shown is that Western societies are really resilient. What we, though, see is we see all the European divisions. We see, you know, we, there's a European Council meeting and everyone, and we know what everyone's saying. Europe does its foreign policy out in the open. Uh, they don't do it like the administration where, you know, it's like the, where the White House and the State Department, you know, don't, it's, that's not public. But there's divisions within our government, but we don't know about. But we see all the European divisions and then assume that Europe's really divided. I think Europe is going to be very, uh, is very solid on this. They're going to remain very solid. And it's going to leave Russia with a real energy problem where in a couple of years down the road, and I think this is where Putin is really playing checkers at this point and is freelancing, where there's Europe, you know, Russian gas is going to be stuck in the ground. They're not going to be able to get it to China. They're not going to be able, they can't, 
they don't have the technological prowess to just start producing LNG, which is much more ex ex expensive. So they're going to have a wasted energy resource uh, because they're now pushing Europeans at light speed to decouple. And so uh, I, I think this is I, I don't I'm I'm pretty confident that Europe will remain pretty solid when it comes to. Uh, well, that's good to hear. I'm, I'm glad to hear you're so bullish on the Europeans. Maria, you had a, a, a comment really just briefly. I want to go to the second part. Yeah. Jump in. Yeah, I concur with Max. And uh, is again, please correct me if I'm wrong, right? Uh, based on my understanding, uh, even if Gazprom was to fully cut off uh, gas supplies, uh, Europe would not die out, right? It would really be problematic for many European countries and the GDP will decline uh, in several countries, but they will manage uh, based on what I understand. I think Putin also understands that even now that Russia has uh, radically reduced uh, gas supplies to Europe, uh, they still are going, right? Because completely Putin is wary of completely losing this leverage over Europe and in some ways is also dependent, precisely under the logic that Max has described, also dependent on the uh, gas supplies. Otherwise, Russia will uh, completely be left uh, without any leverage over Europe. And for Russia, I want to highlight this point one more time. I think weight really hurts. And the only way uh, to make sanctions uh, decisive, I'd say, in this war is to implement uh, the energy embargo, right? Primarily oil. Uh, oil is the key source of Russian uh, revenues. And then, unfortunately, because of the, it's the market, it will be harder to do. Russia will resupply, um, uh, divert its supply somewhere else. But at the same time, uh, if Europe is able to achieve at least partially uh, what it's planning to do when it comes to cutting down Russian's energy supplies, it will be felt, uh, Russia will feel the consequences quite quite uh, strongly. Well, on that optimistic note, that's a good way to segue. In a few moments, we will continue our discussion and take on the myth that a cornered Putin is a dangerous Putin, a narrative that threatens to undermine Western support for Ukraine. I'd like to remind you, you are listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UTA McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. Joining me from Washington, D.C.'s hip DuPont Circle neighborhood is my old friend and colleague, Maria Snegabaya, a postdoctoral fellow at the Kellogg Center for Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at Virginia Tech, a visiting scholar at the Institute for European, Russian, and Eurasian Studies at the George Washington University, and a non-resident fellow at the Center for New American Security. And also joining us from historic downtown Washington is former U.S. State Department official Max Bergman, who served, among other posts, as a member of the Secretary of State's policy planning staff and as a speechwriter for former Secretary of State John Kerry. These days, Max is director of the Europe and Russia program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. If you do, please leave us a big fat five-star rating and review because that helps our visibility. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. And you can follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. Кадры, которые мы получили только что, Владимир Путин Нас никто не слушал. Это Навальный, я уже делаю свою работу, а сотрудники безопасности гоны вас с новым веком. So from French President Emmanuel Macron's comments that we should avoid humiliating Putin to U.S. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan's warnings that giving Ukraine advanced weapons, weapons systems will put us down the road toward a third world war, there is a persistent belief, some would argue myth, out there that a cornered Putin is a dangerous Putin. This, Maria, this is something you and I addressed in a recent article for Foreign Policy. 
writing in the New York Times this week, Max Boot argued that, quote, the U.S. is a lot stronger than Russia and we should act like it. Boot writes that Putin is a classic bully who picks on the weak while shying away from direct confrontations with the strong. Putin is rational enough to realize that if his military is having trouble handling Ukraine, it would have no chance in a war with the Atlantic Alliance. He adds that President Biden is right not to send U.S. forces into direct combat with Russians, but everything else should be fair game. From 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 Atasims to F-16s to Abrams tanks, Maria, you and I just wrote about this. As I noted, why don't you get us started by with a quick summary of our argument that Putin is much more prone to back down than is commonly believed? I'm familiar with it because we wrote it together, but, but let's let's put it out there for our, for our audience. Uh, so really quickly, uh, the idea here is indeed to debunk uh, this commonly held uh, belief that Putin never backs down, and I actually really think that this belief has deeply penetrated even U.S. Uh, policy and broader circles because I commonly get asked this question, all right? But in fact, if you look um, at his uh, Putin's real actions, if you trace his actions over the years, you see precisely, as Marx uh, points out, that as a typical bully, he uh, often backs down when faced with a stronger, resilient support. I'd add here that a lot of uh, biographical um, uh, studies of Putin uh, now trace uh, his early years in Leningrad to some criminal circles. And this behavior is quite typical for uh, this criminal style of behavior where you actually attack uh, the weaker. But when uh, faced with a strong response, you actually uh, back down. Uh, the myth was, of course, uh, based on Putin's own prominent story about the coined red, uh, which uh, he coined uh, as a kid, and the, the red then attacked him. Uh, but unfortunately, but as we show in this article, sometimes uh, a corn red is just a red, and it ultimately uh, will scurry away uh, when faced with a strong response. Uh, indeed, uh, that was the case uh, in many instances. I wanted to state a couple of them. Uh, for example, uh, on several occasions, Russia's uh, Wagner groups in uh, Libya uh, has directly clashed with uh, Turkish President Erdogan's uh, forces and uh, suffered uh, losses. Uh, as a result, they had to retreat and uh, specifically in case in Li of Libya, uh, losing Al-Watiya uh, base, that particular battle, was actually quite consequential for Russia's strategic goals in uh, Libya. Uh, Wagner retreated uh, the positions and essentially afterwards did not attempt to advance on Tripoli uh, ever since. So they actually strategically uh, had to, until now, uh, had to alter the calculus. Uh, similarly, there were even uh, instances when Erdogan actually shot, uh, shot down Russian uh, fighter jet. Um, you'd think a NATO member shuts down Russian fighter jet, a third nuclear world war will come, right? But as a result, Putin followed without some sanctions, which was subsequently removed after Erdogan apologized to him. Again, nothing serious, nothing dramatic has happened. Uh, similarly, were even clashes, direct clashes between the U.S. military and Russia-backed Wagner forces, uh, where uh, the U.S. military actually won, even killing several Russian uh, Wagner mercenaries in that war. Again, 
uh, not only Putin did not retaliate, but there wasn't even a rhetorical uh, response from the Kremlin uh, that we know of, right? So that all of those instances, and you actually, if you look hard enough, you'll find more of them in uh, foreign policy, but also domestically, Putin also tends to back down uh, when faced with stronger public responses, for example. All of those uh, examples demonstrate to us that this uh, idea that Putin never backs down, and when faced with strong response, he will necessarily double uh, double down, right? All of those uh, assumptions are wrong, but it's unfortunate that they have uh, a tendency to uh, essentially delay or uh, to decrease uh, the strength and resilience of the Western response. Yeah, when that when that fighter jet was shot down um, by, the, by, by, by the Turks, I was actually at a conference in Odessa sitting next to a NATO official, <laughs> which was a, a quite quite an, an interesting uh, experience. Max, as someone who's worked in the State Department at a very high level, how do you view this, this argument? Are we unnecessarily self-deterring, or are we just being responsible by preparing for the worst-case scenario? I mean, how hard it is to thread, the, how hard is it from somebody that's been in the room when policy is made, how hard is it to thread this needle? Yeah, well, let me first just agree with the, the your assessment and what, what, what Maria just said. I, I mean, my view is that, it, you know, a, a Putin ignored is also dangerous when you're right. not paying attention to Putin. Putin's always dangerous. And I think the notion that he's more dangerous if you're hum, humiliating him versus when you're engaging him, I think, is, is, is off. I think, look, you know, on the policy side, you always try to think about what can go wrong. And so you want to have that kind of uh, nervous Nelly in the room, and it's it's very useful. And I think in a in a situation like providing you know weapons to Ukraine, the potential for escalation, um, you have to be you have to be somewhat nervous in in providing them. That said, we also have a lot of practice practice doing this. You know, do, fighting the Soviets in proxy wars was kind of like a thing we did. Right. And and so we have a lot of experience. We kind of know what is PG thirteen, what is rated R. We kind of know where the what the standards are. And in some ways, I think it, I think you know it's important to do certain signaling. It's important uh, diplomatically to I think maintain certain lines of communication to to keep those those open. But in general, I think we have been, and I think you know there is a critique of, of certain things that we have held back. But in general. You know, if you were to go back in early February and tell me what we were going to be providing the Ukrainians, you know, it's unbelievable how much right. uh, offensive equipment that we are providing. And HIMARS was like nowhere near, you know, potentially even conceivable. Well, when you uh, were in government, we couldn't even get javelins. No. Exactly. No, I was going to make the same point about yeah, the debate no. of javelins. And, and I think one of the, you know, one thing that we didn't mention is that you know, another thing, threshold that has sort of been crossed here is that when you're providing military equipment, you have to, there's always this like technological concern of that you're providing, when we're providing the most advanced equipment to, and, be, and this was a real issue in 2014, which is, you know, the Ukrainian military was heavily corrupt. And the concern was any advanced systems we provided them were basically were giving to the Russians as well. And that could be exploited. So, uh, and what's happened in this is all those technological security concerns, which really do matter, uh, have been, I think, subjugated down because of the urgency of, of, of the war. But um, so I, I think we've been very forward leaning. I think it is time for us to take a, a bit more, a longer term approach and view this conflict not as something that's just going to unfold 
over the next six weeks. And I think, to be fair, in the early stages of this conflict, it was about getting, you know, javelins and other anti-tank weapons that could be used in, you know, white mobile forces to, and in kind of an insurgent capacity to take down, you know, columns that were coming through. Now we're providing, now we need to provide weapon systems that are useful for a military in a broad conventional sense. And so it's about artillery now. I think it's going to be about tanks and aircraft down the road for so Ukraine can potentially retake territory. Um, so I think we do need to broaden the aperture. I do think we need to continue to be forward-leaning. I think we need to also be clear in our messaging to the Russians. And if they want to sit down and talk with us, and you know, open up. Or, you know, I don't think they should do this necessarily publicly, but say, hey, if you provide X, Y, and Z, it'll cross certain lines. You know, maybe they've tried to signal that at certain times, but I, I think, I think we are in a fairly, you know, I hate to use the word comfortable proxy war, but we know where the boundaries are. We sort of know where we're doing, and and I think we can push those boundaries to a certain degree. And I think it makes sense to go step by step. You know, you're you're. You, the the bathtub water is is becoming warmer. The water and the the top of the no, the analogy is the boiling frog, right? Right. <laughs> that, that, you know their frog is getting boiled to some degree, and getting they're getting used to what we're providing, and they have no grounds to object. So. Yeah, no, and I would, I mean, Marie, you and I made the argument, so I obviously agree with this, that this this myth that Putin never backs down is is just that it's a myth. Um, but that said. Um, how dangerous do you think Putin would be if he, and this is something I've pondered a lot, if he truly was facing something existential to his rule? Um, and by existential, I don't mean existential to Russia, of course, but existential to his rule. If Putin were truly backed into a corner, um, he views this war as, as existential. He, does, he believes he cannot lose this war. How dangerous would he be if he were truly backed into a corner? Well, Unlike uh, many uh, Russia watchers, I actually try to avoid uh, claiming I'm an expert of on Putin's psyche. Uh, you know, right. I can only I can only trace his uh, actions, right, uh, in my analysis, like we did in this article, to demonstrate a particular pattern. Uh, having said that, right, it's true that you have a person with almost completely unconstrained power, probably the most powerful person in the world at this point, given the lack of constraints, right, with a nuclear bomb uh, and very questionable information sources and perceptions of reality. Uh, that is, of course, uh, not, um, not a nice situation to be in. And I do believe from that perspective, a quadrat uh, should always be given a way out, right? But I don't think by far we are in that situation yet, right? If, for example, Ukrainians were to radically alter this dynamic of this war, take over Donbass, uh, Donbass, and then also have some incursions to Crimea, this is where I believe we could have that discussion, right? So far, however, we have a uh, Russian army continuously advancing, unfortunately, in Ukraine, albeit uh, slowly. 20% um, uh, of Ukraine, or 20 to 25% of Ukraine, right, at this point, is under control uh, by the Russian army. And... Uh, there is really uh, no chances so far, unfortunately, for Ukrainians to uh, essentially go back all the way to Crimea. Uh, 
Uh, plus, the Russian side shows no signs of willing uh, to discuss uh, this issue, right? We could talk of a corned red situation when uh, the Kremlin say was desperate to organize the peace talks, but nobody uh, was listening. When quite the opposite situation these days, right? The Kremlin has demonstrated no willingness uh, to uh, talk. Uh, and to follow up on what uh, Max and Brian, you have been saying, uh, as a matter of fact, we also probably will be able to trace some radical change in the Kremlin's behavior and rhetoric. So far, what we see, it's exactly the boiling frog situation when the U.S. administration carefully but steadily keeps increasing, increasing right. right, the size, the caliber, the, I don't know, the, um, of the weapons that are being uh, sent to Ukraine uh, with, uh, with no, so far, uh, radical changes on the Kremlin side. My belief is that we are really overthinking this and showing resilience and commitment to backing down, uh, to backing uh, Ukraine is what's needed at this point. Of course, it's important to keep in mind the risks, but I think uh, there's no lack of, uh, you know, observers obs concerned with the risks, so we are not really uh, lacking that, uh, mm. that assessment. Just yet. All right, we're bumping up against the end, but Max, there's one thing along the lines of what Maria was just saying that I wanted to throw to you before we wrap it up, and that is, like, is there a fear of winning in Western capitals? And when I saw Macron's comments about we can't humiliate Putin, um, we're, it's a war. <laughs> yes, we should. No. Uh, we want to win. We want the yeah. Ukrainians to win. But is there this fear that winning this war is enough to provoke Putin? I mean, do we have a fear of winning? <laughs> I, I, it's a great question. I, I think what we have is a lack of potential lack of belief uh, mm -hmm. that uh, a Ukraine Ukrainian victory is possible. And and I, I think that's something that we should try to shed that. I think we don't know what the direction of this war. I think there's you know, you can m many good analysts would note, you know, stalemate is the most likely outcome. But many wars in the past have looked like a stalemate until they have stopped being a stalemate, uh, you know, the history of Russian involvement in many wars, World War One, you know, was they, they were doing quite well. Then they had reverses. Then it became a stalemate, and then there was collapse. And so there are real. Uh, I think I, I think we just don't know the direction. And I think the assumption on many Europeans, and I think in, in many in Washington, was that this was just never going to go well for Ukraine. For Ukraine, this is just going to be endless bloodshed. So we should just try to stop the war as fast as possible mm -hmm. when not having a more optimistic approach to how this could end, end up. And I think ending the war now, right, if the war were to end tomorrow, is not a good situation no. for Ukraine. It not means that they are never going to be part of the European Union because Russia will control their territory. Ukraine will never be in a position where they can concede losing that territory. So in some ways, we're not at a place where there could be a political settlement. So you need to be at a place where essentially both sides are ready to call it quits. And that is not where we are at. The Russians may be delusional in thinking that they're winning. The Ukrainians may be delusional in thinking that they can take back territory, but maybe neither, maybe the Ukrainians aren't delusional. Maybe the Ukrainians are right. So this is gonna play out. I think this is why you never wanna engage in wars because once you engage in them, it's very hard to find a logical conclusion to them. And there is an incentive and for Ukraine. They have to keep fighting right now because of the war crimes that have been committed because they their loss of territory. So I think what we need to do is prepare for the long haul here. 
prepare to support Ukraine to, to fight not just for the next few months, but for the next few years and make it clear to the Russians that we have the financial capacity to do this for a long time. And mm-hmm. basically, Putin, if you want an ended to end this end this conflict and a way out, if you don't, you know, don't want to be the cornered rat, well, there's a way out. And it's called get out of Ukraine. And there's a way out. So go that way because we're prepared for the long haul and we're going to provide that support. And that's where I think the main signal needs to come financially. And I think that's where I go back to this, but Europe really giving itself a big pot of money where it says this is for multiple year funding to support the Ukrainian military, to support European militaries giving equipment to Ukraine. And we should do the same. And we should say this is multi-year funding to support the Ukrainian military. Because if the war ended tomorrow, guess what? We're still going to have to rebuild the Ukrainian military yep. so this doesn't happen again. So this right. is a multi-year commitment no matter how things go, and I think that's where we need to need to head. Right, and, and a lot of people think a Ukrainian victory, an outright Ukrainian victory, is a very real possibility. Um, if Russia stops fighting, there's no more war. If Ukraine stops fighting, there's no more Ukraine. And on that note, we'll, we'll wrap it up because that's all we have time for today. I'd like to remind you, you have been listening to the Power Article Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UK McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. Joining me from DC's hip DuPont Circle neighborhood has been my old friend and colleague, Maria Sankovaya, a postdoctoral fellow at the Kellogg Center for Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at Virginia Tech, a visiting scholar at the Institute for European, Russian, and Eurasian Studies at the George Washington University, and a non-resident senior fellow at the Center for a New American Security. Also joining us from down historic downtown Washington has been former U.S. State Department official Max Bergman, who served among other posts as a member of the Secretary of State's policy planning staff and as a speechwriter for former Secretary of State John Kerry. These days, Max is the director of the Europe and Russia program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington. Thank you both for an enlightening discussion. Thank you very much, Brian. Thanks so much, Brian. I'd also like to thank our awesome production team in Arlington, Texas. Lance Legas is in the virtual control room. He keeps all the lights on and all the complicated machines well-oiled and in working order throughout our discussion. And Dylan Holberg handles our all-important post-production duties, cleaning up my many, many messes and making us all sound a lot better than we do in real life. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Ripple Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. Please leave us a big fat five-star rating and review because that helps our visibility. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. And you can follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. Join us again next week. And until then, I leave you with the ambient sound mix prepared by our production team.